You are listening to As a Woman, episode 89, Parenthood and Prematurity. In this episode, I'm sharing a very personal story of my nephew, who was born at 24 weeks and spent months in the NICU. His mom, Brittany, is sharing his story today. Welcome to As a Woman, the podcast hosted by fertility physician, Dr. Natalie Crawford, to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community, fostering collaboration over competition while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hey friends. So today I'm very honored to share a really personal story with you. I have Brittany Crawford Vellable on the podcast today. She is my sister-in-law, so she is Jason's little sister, and she is sharing the story of Yates. This is really emotional to me. Because Yates is my nephew, and I remember clearly the day he was born and all of the uncertainty and the fear. I can't thank her enough for coming on the podcast and sharing their story with us for Prematurity Awareness Month. The challenge for preemie parents is not just dealing with the immediate health of their baby, but also with how their friends and family try and fail to communicate with them during this hard time. I also want to say thank you to Water Wipes, who is sponsoring this episode in a desire to show the conflicting emotions and tremendous strength that all preemie parents have. Parenthood can be complicated, and the wipes you use on your little one should be one less thing you have to worry about. That's why the founder of Water Wipes created the world's purest baby wipes, containing simply two ingredients, 99.9% water and a drop of fruit extract. Water wipes have been carefully designed for baby-sensitive skin, and I'm thankful that they are supporting parents and showing the hard side of parenthood with their This Is Parenthood campaign. Also, we use these on my kids the entire time they were babies, and we still have a pack in my car now because my kids are five and six and they're a hot mess, and we always want to have wipes on hand to clean up all of the things. Before we get started, I just want to review a few things about prematurity, and these statistics come from the March of Dimes. A premature baby is born before 37 weeks of gestation. About one in nine babies are born prematurely each year in the U.S. Racial and ethnic differences in preterm rates exist. For example, in 2019, the rate of preterm birth among African-American women was 14.4%. And this was almost 50% higher than the rate of preterm birth among white or Hispanic women, which was 93 and 10% respectively. Preterm babies are at risk for multiple medical issues, including breathing problems, feeding difficulties, cerebral palsy, specific medical problems such as necrotizing enterocolitis, anemia, brain bleeds, heart defects, developmental delay, vision problems, and hearing problems. There's also risk factors to giving birth prematurely, and they include having a prior premature birth, being pregnant with multiples like twins or triplets, having many medical problems having an infection during pregnancy, and engaging in high-risk behavior such as smoking, drinking, or taking drugs while you're pregnant. Ways to minimize the risk for premature delivery include eating a healthy diet, lowering your stress, not smoking or doing drugs, and managing all medical conditions with the help of a doctor. To help prevent premature birth, women are encouraged to seek prenatal care throughout their whole pregnancy. And even if a woman does everything right, her baby can still be born prematurely. Okay, well, it is so special to me to have Bernie on the podcast today, and so I'm going to dive right in. 
Okay, Bernie, thank you so much for being here and joining us on the As a Woman podcast. I'm so honored to have you. You know how special you are to me in so many ways. And the fact that you're willing to come on here and share your story just means the world. So thank you. No problem. I'm happy to be here. So from the beginning, you know, yours and Nikki's journey to conceiving Yates was not really straightforward. And I just wanted to hear a little bit about the before your fertility journey, because one of the things I always talk about with my lesbian couples is how do you decide who's going to carry, whose eggs, whose uterus? Was this any conversation you guys had to have, or was this known from the very beginning? How did you guys decide how your family was going to be structured? Um, it was a pretty easy conversation. Nikki did not want to carry. <laughs> um, she had no desire to go through a pregnancy. So um, I always did want to have a ch- have children. So I was happy to carry. Um, I also am the younger one in the partnership. So um, that made it an easier decision as well because she's a little bit older. So Um, but it was an easy decision, easy conversation, (laughs) easy conversation. So that made it easier. And then, and when it comes to a sperm donor, this is something I think a lot of people don't think about that you have to choose between known sperm donors or anonymous sperm donors. And I know we've had this conversation, but just wanted for the listeners to hear, because there's this misconception that choosing somebody, you know, is going to be like easier, cheaper, maybe more straightforward than getting anonymous sperm. And you've heard my spiel about no, no, you should get anonymous as far as my own professional opinion. What was y'all's thought process around choosing a sperm donor? Um, We hadn't really thought about it whenever we first uh, started thinking of getting pregnant. And then when we did, we thought, just like you said, that it would be easier and cheaper to just maybe think of somebody that we knew. So we did think about that a little bit, but after talking to you more about it and everything that goes into using a known sperm donor and having you know to do the legal paperwork and um, holding it and testing it and all of that, we figured it probably wasn't going to be any cheaper. So we decided to, to use a sperm bank. So I think one thing that people don't realize, and you just touched on it there, is that sperm that's in a sperm bank has already been screened by the FDA. So anytime you're using a third-party source is what we call it. So sperm from an extra kind of party that's not somebody who's intimate in the relationship. It has to go through all this infectious disease testing, this history, this physical. And if you don't know the person, there's like this big quarantine process and it costs money and all the repeat testing. And when you purchase sperm, it's already gone through all of that. So you're actually sharing the burden of that cost between multiple people. And then my just personal professional thought too, is legally, it's really clear. We live in a state of the world where sometimes we'll just say not everybody is as supportive of same-sex marriage as maybe we would like them to be. And so legally, you can't have an anonymous sperm donor coming back and saying, hey, I I wanted to be a dad in that relationship, right? right? Because they gave up all those rights. And that's a little bit less clear when it's a known person who's involved in your life and they potentially hold up in court, even if you have legal documents. So I think those are just things to kind of think through. Before we dive in to Yates's full story, what was your experience, you know, going through infertility? So it's different because what I find is that most of my lesbian couples expect it to be super easy because the thought process is we're just missing sperm, give us some sperm and it will be easy. Mm-hmm. And when it's no, we don't get pregnant right away, it often is a little bit of a harder blow because it costs money every single time you want to try to get pregnant. Sperm costs money, cycles cost money, drugs cost money. 
And so I feel like the emotional kind of burden is accelerated than it would mm-hmm. be, you know, in heterosexual couples who can have just intercourse. Right. What what was your experience if you kind of can take yourself back to going through that fertility journey state? You know, what was that like? Um, it was stressful. It was hard. It took uh we didn't conceive until our fifth try. So um it was definitely daunting and a roller coaster of six months or more that we went through. Um we thought it would be a little bit easier. We knew I would have some trouble um, because I do have Hashimoto's disease. And so with that autoimmune um, issue, we knew that there could be um, some trouble with conceiving and keeping a pregnancy. Um, I also had some symptoms of possible endometriosis, which could have caused, you know, a little bit harder chance. But um, I know you know, you and I talked a lot and we went through all the different screening processes prior to starting, but it was still a daunting process. And it was every single month when it came back negative, we were just like, okay, you know, here's another, another time of going through it. So, um, it was hard. And, uh, Yates was actually conceived on, we were trying to do IVF because the first four tries did not work. Um, we had switched donors already and still didn't conceive. So, um, under your recommendation, we had switched to IVF. I did not produce enough eggs. So we decided to just go ahead and do an IUI because we had two wells of sperm left and it actually took that time. So I didn't have to do the whole egg, uh, retrieval and, and IVF part. So I tell was- this, yeah, I tell people this all the time when we have a canceled IVF cycle. So when we're expecting a certain number of eggs and we're just achieving less than that, is it worth the financial burden of going through? And so I tell her, I tell people, well, Hey, let's consider, you know, converting this to an IUI or converting this to an intercourse cycle. In your case, of course, IUI made more sense. So we could at least get a try for the eggs that had grown, even though it wasn't as high, but I tell people all the time, Oh, wait, when you, my sister got pregnant this way. So it's not like it's a 0% change, you know, cause I right. think there's something that feels really defeated about having your IVF cycle canceled. Like, right. Oh man, my body didn't work. It didn't work. It's not going to work on IUI. Didn't work the other IUIs. And I was like, this is, you know, it, it can work, you know, it's not mm-hmm. as, um, high of a success rate as we see with embryo transfers, but it's not a 0% chance thing. Right. What advice do you give? I'm sure you have, you know, friends or people, you know, who reach out who are lesbian couples at the start of their fertility journey. Do you give them any advice on choosing a fertility doctor or clinic or just thought process along the way? Or do you just say, um, well, luck? if they're in the area, I always recommend you, but oh, well, love you, of course. <laughs> if they're somewhere else, then, um, I recommend that they just, you know, do research and interview the doctor before they get started. Make sure that it's somebody that they would connect with because you're going to be spending a good amount of time with the person. You want it to be someone that you can have that open dialogue with and that you can, um, you know, I definitely had 100% trust in you and I knew you had my best interests. So um, I want that for everybody as they're trying to find somebody. Um, And if they're not comfortable or they're not getting the success or, don't feel like they're getting the support that they need, then they can always go get a second opinion. And I always recommend that too. I think that's Uh, so important, you know, just to know that you're not trapped if you're out of place and it doesn't feel like the right fit or you're not getting the support you need or you're not getting your questions answered. And I've heard some same-sex couples say like, I just feel like they're not really supporting our family journey as well as they should be. And so it's just such a personal and emotional thing. It's really important to be at a place where you feel super comfortable with it. 
I would recommend, sorry, I would recommend oh. using a um, actual fertility doctor in those instant in these instances because um, I do know some people who struggled who wanted to ha- you know just have a regular OB do it so they could continue with the person but especially if if you have anything that could be could make it more difficult or could make you know there be challenges then I would recommend going to somebody who really specializes in it so they could do all the testing they need to do and really have the background and and um, information to be able to support you I think that's so important too. I do see a lot of women, you know, they'll go through IUIs with donor sperm at their OBGYN, which some OB offices do great, some do not. So it's really diverse. And then we'll do a testing to see if their tubes are open. And it turns out their tubes weren't open that whole time. So they spent all this money on the cycles and the sperm and their chance of getting pregnant was zero. And that's a really frustrating place to be in because they feel like they've wasted all this money. They could have just spent on IVF, right? So I do think understanding that you shouldn't, even though you, maybe you just need sperm, that I, my personal opinion is that we should do the testing first to make sure we think that there's a good chance it should work because it is expensive and we want to make sure you have the highest chance per cycle and not a 0%. Right. Okay. So switching gears, because obviously based on what this episode's about, we know Yates was born very premature, Mm -hmm. but did you have any signs of this through your pregnancy? Was your pregnancy going, you know, swimmingly or did you have, you know, infections and preterm labor and lots of cramping and kind of your pregnancy was pretty normal, right? Oh yeah. I felt fantastic. I was glowing. I didn't have any morning sickness. I was just starting to kind of, you know, get more of a bump. I hadn't really started feeling him kick yet, but I felt great during the entire pregnancy. Um, I did have a little trouble a few weeks prior um, with some swelling in my leg, but really that was it. We got it checked out. I didn't have any, um, you know, blood clot or anything going on. So really that was the only thing that was weird that I was just like, okay, well, this is being pregnant. Other than that, I felt great. <laughs> I I mean, I remember getting a call from you and you're like, oh, hey, and I'm having, you know, maybe a little bit of spotting or this or that, but I'm fine, right? Like, do I need to go somewhere? And I was like, yes, you need to call your OBGYN. And you were saying, well, maybe I can go just closer to me. And because I, of course, made you come to an OBGYN here in Austin, which is not where you live. But mm-hmm. I wanted you, I remember clearly kind of flippantly being like, well, I want you to be at a hospital with a really good NICU just in case the worst happens. We don't want you to be, you know, out in wherever Texas. I want you to be closer to us. But then I know when your OBGYN, who's a friend of mine, called my phone when you were there instead of texting me, I was like, Jenny does not call. Like something <laughs> is wrong. I mean, I, I distinctly was in the middle of the clinic and I was like, this is not good. Something is wrong. So mm-hmm. walk us through kind of what happened the day Yates was born. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside, enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan, 
It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? but women belong in scientific research. Their essential and ritual knows this. I choose ritual multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their essential for women 18 plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. So I woke up that morning and, um, I just, like you said, I had a little bit of spotting, did not have any, any real cramping the day before I had had a little bit of a headache, but that was it. And, um, so I was just like, well, you know, maybe I should just make sure that it's, uh, nothing I need to be concerned with, but I was ready to go to get ready and go to work. And so I, I remember I called you and you said, no, you need to lay down, stay flat call your OB-GYN because it was before they opened. So call them as soon as they opened to get in. And I was just like, okay, you know, you're just being ridiculous, but okay, I'll do it. Um, and so I, you know, just kind of laid down. I told Nikki to go on to work. I was like, I'm fine, go to work. So she went to work. And then when I got the appointment, um, I called and I told her. And so she left and came home, even though I told her she didn't need to. I was like, just stay at work. I'll be fine. I'll just go get checked. <laughs> I'll be, I'll be, I'll see you tonight. Thank goodness she didn't listen to you. <laughs> and so, um, so then I took a really long shower, probably almost fainted in the shower. Cause I was just like really hot shower. 
And um, then we went. And when we started our drive up there, I started getting a little bit of cramping. And I was like, hmm, this is weird. So after a while, when it was getting, a, I could tell it was kind of starting and stopping. I looked at the clock and I was just like, I'm just going to see if, if it happens in any type of schedule. So I did time it and it was about every 10 minutes um, that I was having, you know, just small cramps. It wasn't painful at all. And so I was like, hmm, I could maybe, maybe be in preterm labor. Who knows? Um, so we get there. I was started to feel a little bit of pressure. I remember right, right before we got there, um, when we were coming into Austin, I was just like, I'm feeling a little bit of pressure, but I just held tight. I was like, I'll be fine. I'll, they'll just give me some meds. They'll stop the preterm labor. We'll be good. I'll be back home tomorrow. And so I get to the office and Jenny comes in and checks me. Um, it was weird at first cause I had actually lost all the weight that I had gained um, while being pregnant and some, I think I'd lost 12 pounds mm -hmm. and they were like, that's weird. Have you been dieting or exercising? And I said, no, I haven't changed anything. And then they checked me and she just put her hands on my knees and said, we're going to go over to the hospital. Why don't you just get dressed? Everything's okay. And walked out, came back in and she was like, I want to check the heartbeat, make sure everything's okay. We heard the heartbeat and she came back and I was sitting in a chair and she freaked out on me and was like, you're supposed to be laying down. And I didn't know any different. <laughs> so I was just like, okay, I'll lay down. Um, then she puts me in the wheelchair and walks us down to the car, tells Nikki to get the car. And she literally got in our backseat. And that's when we were like, this is not good because we are right across the street from the hospital. Literally. This is not normal. <laughs> I was like, a normal doctor would not do this. Um, and so she drove it, you know, she told us how to get to the right entrance, had Nikki literally park the car in the bay, not even park it in a parking spot, told her to just put her hazards on and leave it. And she was a little nervous to do that because it was the emergency entrance where the ambulances and stuff come. But she said, just leave it. We'll be fine. So we went up. She already had a room for us. Like all the nurses came in as soon as I got there. And there was probably 10 people on me setting me up in bed. So and quickly, you're like probably getting more anxious as this is happening, right? Yeah, I was. But I also, she did a really good job of keeping me calm and just thinking, we're going to work this out. Um, I know there were certain times that she probably thought we were crazy because like Nikki and I would both sit there and be like, so do we need to just tell the, tell our bosses, we're not going to go back to work tomorrow. Are we going to be back next week? Or, you know, what's going on? And she's she's like, like, you're having you're a done. baby. <laughs> she's like, you're done. You're staying here. And, um, you know, she, she just kept saying the biggest goal was to keep me pregnant as long as possible. And they tilted me back, you know, upside down and started giving me all the meds and everything. Um, Nikki still laughs that probably the most pain that I showed that day was when they gave me the steroid um, shot because <laughs> I <laughs> yelled out in pain. Um, but I just, my, my contractions and stuff weren't bad yet. Um, and then at one point I heard... Uh, Jenny, the doctor talking to a nurse and I heard her say something about 10 centimeters. And I was like, I turned to her and I said, I'm 10 centimeters. 
you mean I'm already 10 centimeters? And she was like, yes, Brittany, you only have a bulging sac. You are completely dilated. And I went, oh, so does that mean I can't get an epidural? That was my response. (laughs) (laughs) She said, um, you can, but we need to do that now if you were going to do that. And I said, well, that was part of my birthing plan. So I had a good old plan. (laughs) So I would like, you know, yes, I would like to get it and, you know, not knowing what was coming. Um, and so she ordered it. And in the meantime, also had the NICU doctor come down to talk to us. Um, so how many weeks were you? So tell everybody exactly how far along you were. I was 24 weeks and three days. And so. I, yeah, I remember when the NICU doctor came and wanted to like review statistics and one of you or some, I just remember something being essentially the take home was it doesn't really matter what percentages are. We don't want to hear it. We want to do everything. He's our son. Right. right? Is that kind of right. how? So um, when he came in, he started trying to tell us, you know, what to expect. Of course, we hadn't toured the hospital. We hadn't toured the NICU. We didn't know any of that yet. Uh, hadn't done Lamaze classes. So the nurses are telling me how to breathe. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, and he sat down and he, you know, he said, I, I want, you know, now's when we need to talk about the re- the realistic view of, you know, of what's about to happen. And he was about to give us the statistics. And I looked at him and I said, I don't want to know. And he said, well, I kind of, you know, it's my job. I need to tell you, you know, uh, what it's going to be. And I said, no, I really, you know, Nikki and I, we don't want to know. Um, and he said, well, let me ask you one question then. And I said, okay. And he said, will it change? Will any statistic change what we do for your son? Or yeah, we knew it was for your son. And I said, no, I said, no statistic will change no matter what I want you doing, whatever you need to do to save him. And he said, okay, then you don't need to know. So he didn't tell me. And did you ever find out? We found out the night before he came home from the NICU. And and what did they tell you at that time? Um, They told me that it was, I believe, about a 40% rate that he would survive at all. And it was a 19% rate that if he survived, he would survive without any debilitating, um, bad conditions, uh, medical issues. It's like, you know, really emotional to kind of process that, you know, from this end of the spectrum. Um, I, I'm, you know, going back to the doctors telling you this and you say essentially a very, I always thought this was just a very strong response. Like at this point, this is where we are. We're going to, we're going to do everything we can. It doesn't matter. Don't tell us. Mm -hmm. I'm such a data nerd. I would be like, I need to know. And then I would have obsessed and perseverated over the worst case outcome all the time. So that's always been such a good example of sometimes just you knew what was in your heart and no data was going to make a difference there. And so just let it be, right? Yeah. We didn't want to know because we didn't want the number lingering in our head. We wanted... I thought if I knew, I, I mean, hello, I'm 24 weeks. I knew it wasn't good. Um, like we wouldn't so, be having this talk if everything was normal, right? Like no, you wouldn't. Right. <laughs> right. So um, I knew it was going to be a hard road and I didn't want a number keeping me from being able to be as optimistic as possible and to be there. Um, and, you know, I never thought it was, you know, you always say, you never thought, 
you were going to be put in those shoes. We never thought we were going to be, I never thought I'd have a NICU child. I never thought I would have, I knew that I was kind of more of a high-risk pregnancy, but with how smooth it was going, I was like, I'll be fine. We'll be, we're good. Um, I never wanted to be a part of the family and every NICU mom will tell you that too. But I do looking back, thank God that I was because um, I know I wouldn't have been put there if God didn't think I could do it and couldn't get through it. And, um, you know, we're his parents for a reason. And thank God he, you know, he's a warrior and he didn't have any bad um, illnesses that came out of it. He had zero brain bleeds, which is like unknown Amazing. for children that young. And, um, you know, his biggest thing now is that he wears glasses and he's just delayed. Um, I'll expect it, you know, and things yeah. that will correct with time. What um, I just, you know, I've always been so inspired by you guys. I know, I remember getting there and you had been wheeled back to a C-section. So how did we progress from being in Trendelenburg, which is when you're like heads near the ground and your legs are in the air and they're pumping you full of everything to suddenly being wheeled quickly into the operating room? So um, when I got the epidural, uh, they had to do it, of course, with me laying on my side because they didn't want to sit me up obviously, because gravity. So um, they, after they got the epidural in and rolled me back over, um, Jenny came to check me right away and to check the baby. And she could not, well, first I remember the first machine wouldn't work for her. So then she asked for a second one. The second one wouldn't work and she couldn't get a heartbeat. And so um, when the second machine wouldn't get it either, Instead of continuing to try, she called it and rolled us back um, right away. So it was just the fact that she couldn't get that heartbeat that um, changed her mind to going into emergency C-section. And And I mean, emergency C-section. It was fast. Yes. And you had an epidural, so you didn't go to sleep. You were able to be awake through it, correct? Right. So I had just gotten the epidural put in. So I think the longest part of my C-section was her trying to determine if I was numb enough um, or if she would have to put me to sleep um, to to do it. And so she was pinching my stomach. At least I think that's all she was yep, doing. That's what she was doing. Um, trying to see <laughs> if I could feel it. And I kept telling her yes. And then finally she, she looked at me and goes, Brittany, can, does it hurt or can you just feel it? And I said, I can just feel it. And so then she did, I think it's called a splash and grab. Mm -hmm. You would know better. Yep. So just poured the iodine. I remember one of my arms still wasn't even tied down. So I'm like holding it up in the air. I tried to put it on the other side of the blanket at one point. They freaked out because, you know, that's the clean area. (laughs) Getting your arm all in that area. I'm just like holding it all in the air um, in the middle of it. But I mean, from that point, it was less than a minute for sure. I don't even know how fast um, it was. And he was out. And then I was in the hallway with Nikki when Yates first came out and his little incubator and she and I followed him up to the NICU. And Mm -hmm. I just, I mean, you know, in my brain for my whole life will be how little and tiny and translucent 
he was, right? Like this Mm -hmm. tiny image and being worried about you and being worried about him and, you know, going with Nikki up to the Nikki to see him. But when did you get to see him? Because you had just had an emergency surgery, a very big procedure and you, he's in the Nikki with Nikki. When did you get to go see him? Um, so when I first got into a room, um, after the C-section, they told me that it would be that their norm was 12 hours. And I said, no, (laughs) and they said, and, um, so the, the nurse that had me that the day nurse, she said, well, I'll tell you this, I get off in seven hours. And so, or she got off at seven, so six hours. And she said, I will tell the night nurse that it's seven hours to check you. Um, and if I could stand up on my own and walk, then they would let me go see him. And so when seven hours came, I forced myself up and told them I was fine. And <laughs> they you were the most stubborn. Per- I mean, I'm really stubborn. I'm like, you are the most stubborn person I know. I love it. I said, you're going to take me to my baby now. So they took me at the seven hour mark and let me go. And I remember at one point I did get really weak. Like I had to sit down because um, I got really dizzy and stuff. I probably did push. I definitely pushed myself too far. I mean, I remember all of y'all telling me I didn't need to be a superwoman, but, um, but I wanted to get up there to see him. So, and when you did, I mean, I can't, I don't, can't even really fathom the emotions or what it must have been like. Do you have any remembrance of like what that was like your first time seeing him so tiny and small? I was terrified for him. Um, I mean, there were so many, you know, tubes and he was intubated and, um, it was, it was hard because, I mean, he was so tiny and it was like <sighs> the worst part of being a preemie mom is the feeling that you failed and the feeling that your body failed. And, um, every preemie mom goes through that and you, you know, I still struggle with it sometimes, but, um, you know, I just felt so bad that like, I, my body wasn't able to get him where he needed to be. Um, and I was terrified that would, you know, would he be able to fight and do what he needed to do to grow? Cause he was tiny. Oh, and I mean, that's gotta be probably one of the biggest pieces of advice you tell people about like not to blame yourself. Right. Because even though those feelings are really normal. I can only imagine, especially you have, especially your first kid, you have these new maternal instincts and it's Mm -hmm. just mom, mom guilt on like times a thousand. Right. And so, but it doesn't really serve you. It only makes you feel worse when you really need to be getting all these resources together to be optimistic and to try to like get ready for this fight. You didn't even know that was coming. Right. How do you, what do you tell people about what those first couple of days will be like? Or do you even, or have you connected with people who found themselves as brand new NICU parents? Um, I have, and I am always happy to connect with people. Um, some of my friends have connected me with other families that, um, you know, are starting their journey. Um, and really the first 
several days, if not over a week, you're in a fog. I mean, you're just, well, one, I was, you know, I was medicated, but I was trying not to be. I was trying to take the least amount of pills possible. Again, trying to be a superwoman. Um, and finally, I sat back and said, okay, let me heal myself because I'm no good. With I mean, it's a major yeah. surgery. A C-section is a yeah. major surgery. <laughs> um, and so I did, you know, finally step back and let myself take what I needed to take to heal and take some time to heal. But you're just in a fog and you get all these, you know, new diagnoses and new terms and new things that are thrown at you. The biggest thing I tell families is one, to have a notebook. When we started taking notes every day during rounds, it helped a lot with us being able to process and go back and look at it and see really what we were dealing with. And also to ask those follow-up questions. So we didn't, we weren't as overwhelmed because we could start to list okay, here's all the different things that we're tracking or we're worried about or we're, you know, the different diagnoses he has. So let's do the daily progressions of, you know, what's going on. Um, I suggest be there at rounds. If you can't be there at rounds, make sure you connect with the doctor every day just so that you can really go through with them what's, you know, what's going on and what the status is. But also remember that it's a, it's a journey and it's definitely a roller coaster. You're going to have, you can't even just take it day by day. You really have to take it moment by moment because things change so quickly and you, you just have to be there in that moment and not try to focus on the long-term goals. I mean, you just have to, to be in that moment with them, no matter what it means. How did you stay so optimistic? Because for context, you have this, you know, micro preemie who at, they first tell us they don't even know if they have an endotracheal tube that will be small enough, right? So hurdle right. one is, can we even intubate him? Which luckily right. they were able to get the smallest tube in. You know, all the stuff you're up against, you're not even in your home. You have to like move to Austin, you know, stay in the hospital. Suddenly you're away from your job, totally unexpected, right? You're not prepared to be out. How did you, and I always, I always felt like you both were optimistic, like this very graceful optimism in light of this very hard time. And so was it just literally that to focus moment by moment or what were the other things that were helping you? Did they connect you with other NICU families right away? Or did you organically just meet the people next to you in the NICU? How did you develop that? We met the people next to us. We were lucky enough. So, you know, during his journey, he was at two different hospitals. And um, the first hospital he was at, it was a bay setting. So we didn't have our own room. So, you know, part of it was we were just sitting there at his bedside. And we were lucky enough to be, I mean, we were there from when we woke up in the morning at 8.30 until 10.30, 11 o'clock every night, sometimes later. Um, you know, we would leave and go eat and come back. And so we'd see the other families coming in and out. And um, some of it was, uh, so at the time he was the smallest baby and the youngest baby in the NICU. Um, so some of the families wanted to get to know us because they wanted to, you know, get to know the story of what happened. Um, cause, because it was just, I mean, he was one pound, 
0.6 ounces. So a pound is 16 ounces. So he was 16.6 ounces when he was born and he was 9.2 inches. Um, it's like unfathom. I mean, it's crazy to think about that in hindsight. Yeah. Um, and you know, they, I guess the families I had been there longer, um, you know, two of the main families that we got closest to, they had been there a while already. Their, their kids were in what we call the feeder grower stage. They were, um, you know, older and just trying to grow to, and learn to eat, to be able to go home. Um, and so they, they were kind of at a point that they were able to support us a little bit more. Um, whereas, you know, we were just beginning our journey. So, um, that helped. And, um, looking back, they're still our family. I mean, they'll always be our family and, um, we'll always be connected to them in a way that you can't connect to just, you know, anybody. Um, and it was hard to stay positive, but yes, I think living in the moment helped us stay positive because when something great happened, we were able to celebrate it no matter how small it was, um, because it was a victory. And when a bad day happened, we were able to think of that just as a bad moment and, and then move past it quickly, you know, to say, okay, well, what's today's moment going to be? Um, the hardest part was probably when he got the, when he got sick the first time and got moved, um, you know, for what we thought was going to be emergency surgery ended up not being any surgery. Um, but it was like transport in like the middle of the night to the children's hospital. It was, it was really intense. I remember it was, and it was so hard to leave the nurses that we had grown to know the families that we knew. I mean, our support was there. Um, you know, we were going to this whole new hospital, nurses, we didn't know, no families we knew we were put into a room, you know, our own room, which a lot of people would say, isn't that better? And it turned out to, to be a blessing in disguise. But when we first got there, it was isolating. isolating. Yeah. We, um, we didn't like it at all. <laughs> um, but, um, it was harder to meet families over there. So we stayed more in touch with our first hospitals, families and nurses and stuff. Uh, but luckily, you know, towards closer to the end, we were able to meet some families and one we were able to actually help. They, um, their baby was born two months after Yates. So it was, you know, further along in our journey and was a 24 weeker also. And so we were able to kind of give back to them and, um, be that support for them to help them start to get through their journey. That's so special. And it had to be harder being at the children's hospital because since nobody delivers there, only sick babies go there. Right. So mm -hmm. everybody you're meeting who was coming in was really going through something. And right. that's a little, that's a little, that's a lot. I remember the stories of you guys telling us the people who are, you know, in the rooms next to you, or this happened last night or a baby coded, you know, and the things that mm -hmm. you kind of knew were happening. I always think about looking back on that time period, knowing myself, I probably would have been, you know, really anxious, you know, was there anything that, you know, helped you or maybe looking back, you wish you'd done different or any way that you were able to not let 
the bad stories you saw happening over the children's hospital kind of sway you? Or is it literally just knowing that every baby had their own course and you were doing everything you could do? I just, I, you know, I can't imagine how, I know my own mom anxiety, like when they yeah. get cold, right? So just like, it feels like that just on steroids. So I'm just curious, how did you manage that knowing there were these sick babies around you guys too? You know, um, it broke our heart to see it, uh, especially the few that were very, very sick that were there. Um, and it does make you feel just kind of helpless because you can't do anything to fix it. But we had to just focus on our own journey. And we really, really tried throughout the whole time to look at the small positive wins that we got every day with him. Um, you know, whether it be, we, we went down a little bit on the oxygen or we grew a pound or whatever we could to focus on, um, that was, you know, something we could celebrate. And luckily, you know, thank God it, he did very well compared to what he could have done. And so we know how blessed we are and it, and it almost, because the babies at that hospital were so sick, um, it's crazy looking back, but I remember looking with Nikki some days, you know, cause we were driving back and forth at that point from San Antonio every day. And we would sit there and say, you know, Yates got another UTI and oh my gosh, he's so sick. And then we'd sit there and look at the other moms, you know, when we're in the Ronald McDonald room eating our dinner and we would be like, Gates has a UTI. Like he just has a UTI. Yeah, like perspective. He's gonna get right? through this. Yeah. So in a way, maybe having that perspective helped us stay more positive because we were able to see the blessing that he did have of okay, he doesn't have a brain bleed, or he does he's not on like 15 medications at once or ECMO or you know, things like that. He's, he's okay. He just needs to grow and develop and, and get better so that we can go home. Um, I think it helped us just focusing on the positives that we could. Oh gosh, you're just so strong. I love you so much. Um, I'm just like, just thinking about it and just all those like in the moment worries, but then the yet unknown of he doesn't have a brain bleed. So that's so good, but developmentally, you know, how mm -hmm. will, how will he be? What will it be like afterward? And I know you guys were really able to compartmentalize and not worry about that side of things. And he's done so great. What, how, how would you tell somebody to support a friend or family member who suddenly ends up with a NICU baby? You know, so you get a call and you're like, Hey, you know, my sister had a NICU baby. What can I do for her? I'm sure people will reach out to you asking, you know, what was helpful to you. And I think when you're in the moment, it's hard because if everybody's calling you asking what they can do, it's like, you're too overwhelmed to like give mm -hmm. them an answer on how they can help you. Right? right. So what are tangible things that you found that were actually helpful? Well, for us, especially because we were in a different city, um, getting like Grubhub, DoorDash, things that deliver that would deliver to the hospital getting gift cards for that was amazing. And also for us, once we moved back home, um, gas cards was amazing because 
we went every day ex- until we were told take a day off because we were <laughs> exhausted. Um, you know, and so it was 180 extra miles a day, probably from our works, you know, there. And um, so that definitely costs a lot of money. And so I would say little things like that. So we didn't have to worry about food um, or to help with gas. Um, if you want to do a care package things, um, it was funny because we probably have like 150 blankets because that's all that people could give us for so long. So, um, <laughs> you know, like the clothes little don't fit, just send a blanket. Yeah. <laughs> so the blankets, you can swaddle them in, or um, I know not all hospitals allow those things. Um, you know, we loved it when we got like decorations from your kids, when they would color pictures so that we could hang them on the walls um, around his isolate. And, um, you know, like I said, a journal, cause we went through probably three during our NICU stay, um, little milestone cards for the premium milestone cards. Those were so cute. That really helped us celebrate. Cause it had a lot of different moments that you could think, you know, you might not have thought of. Um, and so we could focus on, you know, posting pictures or taking pictures with the different cards. Um, so that helped us stay positive and, try to connect them to someone who they can talk to. Um, I know this sounds maybe rude and not everybody might understand it, but it's one of being a NICU mom is one of those situations or dad is one of those situations that not everybody can relate to. And the last, the thing that upset us more is getting the, you know, I can only imagine what you're feeling or um, different things from, from people who hadn't been there that are like trying to relate. And I know it comes from a good place. I mean, you know, and I tried to always remember that, but you really want somebody who can sit there and just like, listen to you and let you be mad, let you be, you know, sad. Um, don't try to relate to it because it's just, it's a whole different experience. Um, but just try to listen or give them someone that, that can. Um, so that human nature thing of, oh, you have a problem. Let me try to solve it or give you examples of how I've been there. Like this is not a problem that's solvable. And this is not a problem that unless you've literally been there and can say, I remember when my baby was X weeks old, or this happened to us in the NICU, then probably just, I'm sorry. I love you. I'm here for you is better response. And I I think it's human nature. I I agree with you. I don't think people are well-meaning you know, I don't think they're trying to be mean spirited. I think they are well meaning right. when they do it, but it it's hurtful, you know, because it's almost like they're making light of this very right. real thing that you're going through. Right. right. Yeah. Well, um, so it was hard. So I think that's something that, you know, having the other moms, which they're both definitely um, you know, realist and we we kind of had to make we did have to make light of some situations and laugh at, you know, certain things, but that was something that we always talked about was just, Oh my gosh, if I get one more random person that comes up to me and is like, I've been there when they really haven't and tries to relate it to, you know, something not even close. Um, 
we just want to scream because it was just, it's, it's hard to, um, to really express, uh, what you're going through. And a lot of times I didn't necessarily want to talk about it. Um, I might've just wanted to sit there and just let them, let them sit there, let them process and let them have the guilt too, and process that guilt because just dismissing it is not going to help them work through it. Um, you know, I luckily had the other moms that I could talk to so we could talk through it together. Um, but you know, you have to process that it's, it's a hard thing to go through, um, to, to come to the realization that, you know, I didn't do anything wrong and it just happened because it happened. And, um, you know, we just have to move forward with the cards we were dealt, but it's really hard to sit there and have your body fail. The other thing I will say is do not ever, if they have, I had trouble pumping Mm -hmm. and getting milk supply. (laughs) Pumping and getting milk supply when your baby is in a NICU is so hard and do not ever demean the supply that they get because just sitting there and trying um, is a lot. I remember when that happened to you and, you know, it kind of set off a wave of emotions. You're trying to be so strong and you, you know, I didn't really realize it, but how you're saying now you kind of already have felt like you were failing and then you're trying to pump and get whatever you can, you know, and when it's not very much because your baby, one, they're so small, they don't need very much Two, your body's not ready. Three, you know, you've been through this huge emergency, fast, crazy, crazy situation. Right. And so, um, I think that's just so important for people to remember, like the words that they say matter a lot. Mm -hmm. And if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. All right. I mean, like, I don't, right. I don't know. Like, I think that. Right. And I, I also would say to the moms who are struggling with their supply, don't, um, don't feel bad if you have to use donor milk. Yes. Don't feel bad if you have to supplement with formula. I mean, it's okay. Um, you know, my baby was lucky enough to get some milk from me until I couldn't supply anymore. Um, but I just feel like he got what he needed. And, and he's um, great. He's, right. he's going to be fine. Um, so, yeah, if you have, if you're a, a NICU mother out there that's struggling with supply, just do the best you can. And if you can't do it, don't do it. Don't let it add more stress to what you're going through because they'll be okay without it. And I think that was hard for me to come to terms with. And I kept pumping, even though I was getting barely anything, even after he came home. And um, finally, one day I just said, you know what? I'm done. He's going to get what he gets. But now I want to focus on him. And I don't need the added stress of the pumping. Like he was never going to be able to breastfeed. Some babies are lucky enough to be able to, he wasn't. And so I just didn't feel the desire to need to add that additional stress onto what I was going through. Yeah. Fed is best. It's not, you know, that it has to be breast it's fed. So don't harbor all this guilt. Um, Kind of wrapping things up. I want to ask us a few more things. I think, you know, when did you, graduate, you know, that graduation discharge day, did that, you know, how did that feel? What was that like then your first night having a baby at home? (laughs) 
Um, it was very exciting, but very terrifying. So we got to take him home on his four month exactly. So he was exactly four months old. And um, the night before we stayed up there and did an in-room with him. So we um, stayed in a suite and they brought his crib in so that we could stay with him. But, and so when we took him home, we were just um, pretty terrified. Once we got (laughs) home, we were like, are they sure that he was okay? Um, that they trust us? I mean, everybody said we were fantastic moms in the NICU, but we're like, we're NICU moms though. Like we have nurses 24 seven helping us take care of our son. So yes, we're going to, you know, be able to. We're set up for success okay. here in the NICU. <laughs> but now you're trusting us to do it all on our own. Um, so it was terrifying. We did get an oxygen monitor sock. Um, for us, it was great. It's not great for all families. Um, I would say it's accurate, but if you're one that in the NICU, the alarms and stuff freaked you out, it might not be best for you because um, you have to be able to, you know, stay calm and really like the NICU nurses always say, look at the baby. Don't just look at the monitor. It actually only went off on us twice, two different times. And when it did, it was really something. So he. The first time it um, said he had a low O2, he did have a UTI again. That was how he manifested. Um, and so we were able to catch it quick and get him on meds. But, um, you know, it's not for everybody. But we were terrified, but we got through it. And through some time and a few days, I mean, I think it's just like any first-time parent going home. It's like, you trust us with this thing at home by yourself <laughs> and to take care of it. Um but we got in a groove and once we did, we were good. Just for, you know, you don't have to go into huge detail, but just to give perspective, you know, the journey doesn't end with the NICU and Yates has done really well. But over the course of the past couple of years, you guys have a lot of doctors and specialists and appointments, yeah. right? So what kind of care team does he have that requires you guys to go to different, you know, visits or has he had throughout this period of time? Um, so we still have a cardiologist that follows him. So when he left the NICU, he still had an open PDA, which that was what actually got us transferred from the one hospital to the children's hospital. They thought he was going to have to have emergency surgery to ligate his PDA. Um, but he ended up having a UTI and that's why his, uh, he was so sick and doing so bad. It was not his PDA. So once they got him on medications and stuff, the PDA somewhat closed back up to where it was small and constricted. So we were able to just leave it open. He was actually part of a study to see if as they grow, will it close on its own? Um, His did not. So he did um, at about a year and a half, I believe it was, he got it, uh, they call it, I guess it's plugged. He got a um, mesh put in, uh, to but pl- not pl- open heart surgery, like a femoral no, procedure. Yeah. yeah. So when he was going to have to have it in the NICU, it was going to be um, open through the side of his chest, breaking or collapsing a lung, doing all this stuff. He was only 630 grams at that point. It was um, going to be a oh. lot, but, <laughs> but um, we didn't have to have that. So, but he's still followed by a cardiologist. He has two different ophthalmologists that follows him, one for his retinas because he had ROP stage two. Um, 
And so they still follow his, his uh, retina doctor. And then he also goes to a different ophthalmologist for his vision. And then he has, I, I don't even know the name of the disease, but he has the disease where he has a lazy eye that um, crosses a little bit. Mm-hmm. So he wears a patch for that. So they follow him for that. Um, he had um, just a regular surgeon who did his um, hernia repair mm-hmm. that he had. So he had a hernia repair and circumcision and then um, laser eye surgery for his ROP. Uh, cath lab for his PDA. Um, that's all the surgeries he's had so far, but he still has a lot of specialists. He also has a developmental pediatrician. His regular pediatrician follows him closely. And then he has um, OT, PT, and ST that he gets uh, every week. So he's doing amazing, but I think it's, you know, really humbling to kind of hear that you think about just getting home from the NICU, right? And yes, that's we're so lucky and fortunate that, you know, to get to that point, we know not everybody does, but then it's like, that's not the end of the journey, right? Like there's still a lot that kind of is going to go into it to help him overcome normal things that are all expected with preemies, especially somebody who was born as early as he was and as small as he was. So none of that's out of the expectation of normal, but it just really shows you that having that community too, as you've talked about, is so important because Mm -hmm. so most people, you know, are lucky enough not to have children who need lots of surgeries and procedures and doctor's visits. And that's a different life. And I made everything probably, you know, a lot of yours were here in town. So you're also driving for these visits and taking off work and just, it's a lot. And you guys have handled it so well. And I'm so thankful that you have come on here to share this. I know my last question for you is because we've said it a couple of times is that no, nobody expects to be a, a preemie parent. It is something mm-hmm. that is thrown on you, usually in the setting of emergency, not you're preparing to become one. So when it happens, right. you just have to adjust and, and do your best. And what is your last piece of advice, you know, not to all the support people, but really to that new preemie parent about kind of what you want to tell them about this journey? Um. I would say ask a lot of questions. Don't be afraid to ask those questions. Um, The doctors and nurses are there just as much to support you as anybody else. And I always say that they were my nurses and doctors as well. They helped teach me um, and get me through days. They were my therapists sometimes. So talk to them, talk to somebody, find someone who best is able to support you in what you need, whatever that may be. And sometimes it is family and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it is someone who's going through it with you at the same time. Um, and lean on your spouse and talk with your spouse. Um, you know, I know that that's hard too, cause you both want to be strong for each other, but you've got to have moments that you just sit down and cry and it's okay to cry. Um, and it's okay to celebrate the littlest thing like do that so that you can have, you know, happy, happy moments as well. And, and just remember it's a roller coaster and it's a journey and you're, you just got to be on that ride. I mean, you just, you got to take the good with the good and the bad with the bad and just remember that it's going to keep, you know, keep going. And, um, and I'm happy to talk to you know whoever might need to, I'm happy to be there. 
You are the best. I just want to say I love you so much. I love Nikki. I love Yates. I'm so honored to have you come on here and share this really, really personal and vulnerable story. And I know that there's going to be people listening who it really changes how they view either their own experience or what others in their life may be going through. So a huge thanks. And I just love you. Thank you. No problem. Thank you. All right. I have to admit that was really emotional for me to live back through those moments and just sincerely a huge thanks to Brittany and to Nikki for allowing their personal story to be shared. I can vividly remember every moment. I just want to send love to anyone who's been in this position. The truth is, we know how lucky we are to have Yates. We know that his odds of leading the NICU were low, and we cherish him and we are amazed by him every single day. Many parents of preemies are not as lucky. And to anyone who has experienced the death of a child at any state, during pregnancy, childbirth, as an infant, as a child, as an adult, my family is sending yours love and support. This is a grief that I know will never leave and is only amplified during the holiday season. Many thanks again to Waterwipes for sponsoring this episode and supporting parents. This episode is a part of their This Is Parenthood, hashtag This Is Parenthood campaign, and you can find more information at waterwipes.com US. As always, you can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Natalie Crawford MD. And I would love it if you would check out the YouTube channel as I work to empower with education. Thank you, friends. Hey guys, welcome to The Collective. I'm Brian Halfrich, a 26-year-old bioethics PhD student and clothing brand CEO. Welcome to my podcast where we talk all things health and wellness, navigating your 20s, and becoming the best version of yourself. So sit down, play that episode, and join The Collective.